Hi, it's Michael. What you're about to hear is chapter seven of an eight-part series. If you're the kind of person that likes to start a story from the beginning, I recommend starting at chapter one. And if you're a fan of the show and want to see more, you can follow us for bonus content, images, and videos of the events and people that take place in the story by following us at How to Start a War Pod on Instagram. Now, on with the story. The Nazi foreign minister, Joaquin Ribbentrop, was about to have the most important meeting of his life. He was sitting in a dimly lit anteroom, waiting to be called into the office where his meeting would take place. It was dim by design. The man Ribbentrop was here to see didn't like rooms that were too bright. In this light, the wooden walls around him didn't have the warmth or character, but instead looked bare and cold. Ribbentrop hadn't slept the night before. Instead, during his layover in Königsberg, he worked through the night to prepare for this meeting. In the small hours of the night before, he and his staff pored over documents, figures, and timetables. With such little sleep, the normally scheming Ribbentrop would have thought he would be more tired. But surprisingly, he had never felt more alert. He knew that this meeting might decide the fate of the Third Reich. And Hitler had put his personal trust in him to carry out this monumental task. This state of anxiety was new for the German foreign minister. Ribbentrop normally walked into meetings with foreign leaders with a swagger of confidence that Hitler instilled in him that got him to where he was today. His connections with ministers across Europe, his network of contacts from country to country, his greasing of high-powered palms was worthy of his position as foreign minister of the Third Reich. And yet, he didn't have the same confidence going into this meeting. He believed that he had prepared well enough for it to go well, but he knew that assuming anything that the man he was about to see was a dangerous gamble. Because Ribbentrop had never met with a man like this. A man whose ruthlessness knew no bounds. A man who had worked, schemed, and brutalized his way to the highest office in the land. A man whom even Hitler was cautious of. The only man who had killed more people in his rise and consolidation of power than even Hitler himself. It was the man who, with Ribbentrop's coaxing, was about to decide the fate of the world. The sound of the door unlocking broke the silence of the room and snapped Ribbentrop back to reality. 
he looked up as the wooden double doors of the office opened. A man stuck his head out to say, quite casually, Comrade Stalin will see you now. I'm Michael Trapani, and this is How to Start a War, a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. While the characters we follow are at the center of this story, they are not the heroes. This is not that kind of story. This story is about what happens when good people do nothing to stop the worst people on Earth while they still can. Let's continue. Chapter 7 Permission This story, as you've heard it up until this point in six chapters, has taken place over a period of 16 years. From that cold November night of the Beer Hall Pooch in 1923, to the fall of Czechoslovakia in March of 1939. 16 years. The rest of this story, in the final episodes of How to Start a War, will take place over a period of just a few short months. We're now in 1939, and things are going to move very quickly. So get ready, and don't say I didn't warn you. Shortly after President Hatcha's fateful surrender at the Reich Chancellery and Hitler's bloodless conquest of Czechoslovakia was complete, the Allies' worst fears were starting to materialize. Remember the Munich Agreement from Chapter 5, when England, France, Italy, and Germany came together in a conference in Munich to settle the fate of the Sudetenland in order to prevent a war? One of the key reasons that the Allies allowed that to happen was because Hitler had said over and over again that Czechoslovakia was his last territorial demand in Europe. His entire public argument was that he was freeing so-called Germans from non-German rule and bringing them under the wing of the German Reich once again. He had said repeatedly that the treaties that ended the Great War cut Germans off from their fatherland, and his efforts were simply to reunify Germans in a fair and equitable way. This is what Hitler said, and he promised that the reunification objective would be complete once the Sudetenland was back in German hands. And now it was as was the rest of Czechoslovakia. But in the months following the fall of Czechoslovakia in early 1939, Hitler and his vast propaganda apparatus began to turn their ire towards yet another country. Poland. 
against all of Hitler's promises, there now seemed to be yet another territorial demand taking shape. A city located in Polish territory named Danzig. Let's orient ourselves. If you look at a map of Europe in the spring of 1939, and you look at northeastern Germany, the top right corner of the map, you'll see something quite strange. In the map, the country of Poland seems to slice off a small piece of Germany, separating a small territory of Germany from the rest of the country, so that going from west to east, there's Germany, Poland, then Germany again. This Polish slice that cut through German territory was known as the Polish Corridor. It was called that because it actually looks like a pathway to the ocean within Poland. It was granted to Poland after the end of the war, another one of those treaty terms that Germans resented. Poland was given access to the sea at the expense of a connected Germany. Now, instead of the country of Germany being a single piece of land, it was one large landmass, then a small appendage of Germany, disconnected from the rest of the country, sort of like Alaska to the United States. This German appendage was called East Prussia. Smack dab in the middle of that Polish corridor was a city called Danzig a technically independent city-state under the protection of Poland. Danzig, before the Great War, was a bustling German port. Now, it was a bustling Polish port, which gave them access to the Baltic Sea and all of the commerce that came with it. Ever since the surrender of Czechoslovakia, Hitler began to make public statements for Germany to be re-granted access to Danzig and for it to be taken back from Poland. Publicly, Hitler made those demands through speeches and Goebbels' propaganda machine followed with a barrage of radio broadcasts, film, and sensationalized news coverage. Story after story was written about Danzig and how supposed Germans there were getting treated as second-class citizens by the Polish government. But in private, where autocrats do their real work, Hitler called on his foreign minister, the arrogant and wily Joachim von Ribbentrop, to make an audience with the Polish government directly and to see if they would be willing to part with Danzig. Initially, Ribbentrop's offers to the Poles seemed friendly. Germany didn't wish to absorb Danzig, but only wanted to build a high-speed railroad and a superhighway across the Polish corridor to Danzig. It was pitched as an investment in Polish infrastructure. The Polish government thanked Ribbentrop for the offer, but politely declined. They did not have any interest in German investment into their country. And so, the friendliness from Ribbentrop began to turn into threats, pushing the demands more forcefully, speaking about it as if German ownership of Danzig was a foregone conclusion. 
the Polish government continued to refuse any discussion of the Danzig question. Then, Ribbentrop turned up the heat. He summoned the Polish ambassador to his office and told him that the Fuhrer is becoming increasingly amazed at Poland's attitude. We need to find a satisfactory answer, or the outcome will not be to Poland's liking. It was at this time that the Polish government seemed to realize the real situation that they were in, and began to reach out to their allies to make them aware of their position. The Polish government requested the audience of the British government. As we learned at the end of the last chapter, the stance in England towards German aggression had changed dramatically after the fall of Czechoslovakia. If an attempt were made to change the situation by force in such a way as to threaten Polish independence, Why then, that would inevitably start a general conflagration in which this country would be involved. Chamberlain, whether it had come to him on his own realization or from political pressure, had exhausted his appeasement strategy with Hitler. His next steps would be bolder, tougher, and in line with popular opinion. He would now be firm with the German dictator and began to refer to him as the bad faith actor that he was. And to make their position known, England signed a formal military alliance with Poland, linking the fate of Polish and English interests once and for all. In response to the English-Polish alliance, Hitler gave a fiery speech in the Reichstag that was broadcast across Europe and even in the United States, defending Germany's position, reframing the situation to paint Germany as the victim, that the great powers of the world were once again ganging up on poor Germany to isolate it, and that Germany would continue to push for what Hitler said rightly belonged to his people. Hitler didn't know it, but this would be the last peacetime speech he would ever give. invading German army once again awoke the echoes in Europe. This despite the promises given to Mr. Chamberlain of the world at Munich. We know now the real intentions of Hitler and the Nazi fanatics. Britain must be prepared. In May of 1939, there was a fever in Berlin. The mood of the city felt nothing like it did only a year ago. Poland had not backed down, and it was not allowing for Hitler's demands to build a high-speed rail and superhighway across the Polish corridor to Danzig. It seemed, at least for now, that this was the end of Hitler's conquest by telephone calls, threats, and bluffs. 
For the first time, it seemed that the only path to expand the Reich would be through blood. It was for this reason that Hitler had called all of his military leaders together. The heads of the army, navy, and the new air force. Fourteen of them all together to Berlin for a top-secret meeting. The meeting was so secret that the fourteen men, the utmost senior in rank, were not permitted to allow their general staff to attend. Yesterday, Hitler and Mussolini had signed what would become known as the Pact of Steel, a formal military alliance that obligated Germany and Italy to one another in the event of an outbreak of war. The day before, the media around the world had broadcast the news of the deal, that the two countries were now in lockstep and posed a threat to all of Europe. Yesterday was a big day. But today is a bigger one. It's time to learn why Hitler would start a war. We have heard the public reasoning before, but only in platitudes, speeches, poetics, and even Hitler's own dramatic propaganda. The reason that had been drilled into the minds of Germans and citizens across the world was that Hitler was reassembling the German Reich once more. He was building a third German Reich, or realm. The First Reich, when the region of Germany was a Holy Roman Empire in the Middle Ages. The Second Reich, when the Iron Chancellor Bismarck unified Germany and established dominance over Central Europe at the end of the 19th century. And now, a Third Reich, when Hitler liberated the Germans from their oppressors and brought them into the Reich once again. It was the Rhineland. It was Austria. It was the Sudetenland. It was Czechoslovakia. And now, it was Poland. That was the position in public. But today, at long last, in the ultimate secrecy of the Chancellery, in the confidence of his top generals, away from all the speech podiums, the radio broadcasts, and the controlled media, Hitler would cut through all of the propaganda and for the first time explain why he needed to plunge Germany into a war from which there would be no return. The 14 men around the table, very unlike their legacy predecessors, had learned not to speak or give their opinions, but only to listen and carry out orders. That's all they were here for. The door was closed, then locked. Hitler stood up and began pacing around the room, saying, Germany's economic problems can only be solved by obtaining living space in Europe. And this is impossible without invading other countries or attacking other people's possessions. This can no longer be obtained without the shedding of blood. Let me be clear about something. Danzig is not the subject of the dispute at all. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Danzig 
the city that Hitler had been demanding to connect to Germany and return to the Reich, the subject that Hitler had just declared as a priority to once again be German, is not the subject of the dispute at all. What is public is not reality. Hitler goes on. Danzig is not the subject of the dispute at all. It is a question of expanding our living space in the East, of securing our food supply. There is no other possibility in Europe. If fate forces us into a showdown with the West, it is invaluable to possess a large area in the East. Besides, the population of non-German territories in the East will be available as a source of labor. Hitler is giving hints to the economy of slave labor of the Jewish and Slavic people that Hitler would one day enact. Now, to lay out his predictions of how the war would unfold and what preparations would need to be made. There is no option of sparing Poland, and we are left with the decision to attack Poland at the first suitable opportunity. We cannot expect a repetition of the Czech affair. There will be war. Our task is to isolate Poland. Success in isolating her will be critical. It must not come to a simultaneous war with the West, France, and England. And so there it is. There would be a war with Poland. At best, it would be with Poland alone. In order to accomplish this, they must isolate it from its allies. This would be the objective that Hitler would set for his foreign service team. However, for the men in this room, he needed them to prepare for the event of a full-scale war with the Western democracies, in case they were unable to isolate Poland from them. And besides, he knew that a war with the West would come sooner or later. He laid out the rest of his war plans. Here they are. First, a complete and total surprise attack on Poland. Decisive battles, inflicting maximum casualties and destruction. The plan was to bring Poland to its knees immediately. This would be a lightning war. It would begin and end so quickly that the Allies would not even have time to intervene, fully mobilize their armies, and enter the war on behalf of Poland while it was still fighting. By the time the Allies could even enter the war, in Hitler's mind, Germany would already be done with Poland, and could turn her attention entirely on the West. That threat, he believed, would be enough to make the Allies back off. They would have no choice then but to face a single front line with Germany. Next, with everything it gains from the war with Poland, its new slave labor force, access to new ports and trade, and a global demonstration of German military might, Germany would wheel around and smash down onto France and England. For the attack on France, Hitler ordered that his generals not attempt to go through the impenetrable Maginot Line, the wall of fortresses on the border of Germany and France, but instead go around it through Holland, slicing through the small neutral nation like butter, and pouring into the lesser defended north of France. 
the action would simultaneously take France off guard from the north, but also cut off British access to the European continent at the same time. Not through the wall, but around it. Next, Hitler set an order for a general blockade to be enforced around England once the war began, cutting it off from all of her wealth overseas, and most importantly, her food supply. England, Hitler believed, was no longer capable of feeding itself. Finally, he reiterated that even if England and France stay out of the war with Poland, there will be a war with England and France eventually. It would be a long war, a war that would either be the beginning of a thousand-year Reich or the very end. War was the only option, and the only option for its outcome was victory. Without war, there would be no Germany. Without victory, there would be no Germany. The generals adjourned and the Supreme High Command prepared for what is known in military strategy as total war. Total war. A war without limit. A war with no boundaries. The war would not be fought over there, but everywhere. On the front, there would be violence and blood. In the factories, there would be war machines. In commerce, there would be war supply. In homes, there would be a war labor force, an army. The last total war had buried Germany. The next one, according to Hitler, would bring it domination of the world. And with what military would German use to fight this total war? The German war machine was now taking its formidable shape. In the army, there were now 51 divisions of trained and brutally disciplined infantry, nearly a million men. Also in the army were nine armored divisions of a new kind of war machine, fast-moving tanks, guns, and artillery, a modern battle cavalry, the likes of which the world had never seen. The German Navy, who would be tasked with engaging with the world's leading naval power of England, had been scaled up to 22 destroyers, 54 submarines, six heavy cruisers, two massive battleships, and a brand new naval weapon of the future, an aircraft carrier. The new Air Force was unlike any other fighting force in the world. Led by the rotund Hermann Göring, the Air Force, or Luftwaffe, was fashioned with hundreds of fighter planes, bombers, and spy planes. Over 260,000 personnel, including some of the best trained pilots on Earth. And coursing through the bloodstream of every soldier, every tank operator, infantryman, pilot, was a new kind of chemical weapon. Drugs. The kind of drug that makes a transport driver stay awake, alert, and pushing forward for seven straight days without sleep. Synthetic stimulants, methamphetamines, manufactured by German pharmaceutical giants, 
would fuel the German warfighter to levels of speed and endurance that would shock their enemies. All of this had been accomplished in just a few short years. To give you some perspective, it took 16 years for Germany to be ready for the Great War in 1914, creating a total of seven divisions. Now, in just four years, the Third Reich had built 44 divisions. It was time to begin secret military preparations for Operation White, the surprise invasion of Poland. The objective, destroy the Polish army before it could even mobilize with crushing blows. Here's what it looked like. There would be two invading armies. One, Army Group South, would be on the southern border of Poland and invade from mainland Germany. The second army, Army Group North, would be in East Prussia, that Alaska-like detached appendage from Germany, and invade from the north to connect the two German territories by driving across the Polish corridor in a crisscross. Danzig would be declared a German state in the first day of hostilities, and local security forces would occupy it under German command. General Keitel, the head of German high command, turned in the final plans for Operation White on June 22nd. Preparations, he said, would be complete by August 20th, 59 days away. In Rome, the Italian dictator and ally of Germany, Benito Mussolini, was beginning to have second thoughts about his decision to so closely attach himself with the fate of Hitler's. When the Pact of Steel was signed, Hitler had assured Mussolini that the war they were planning to fight against the Western democracies was still years away. But in the following weeks, alarming messages started to come out of Berlin that the German foreign minister Ribbentrop was talking openly about welcoming an immediate attack against Poland, that a war with Poland would be easy to win, that it could be won in 48 hours, and that even if other countries wanted to get involved, all the better. Why was Mussolini, the militaristic fascist, so hesitant to get pulled into a war? There was one simple answer. Italy was not ready. Mussolini knew that the Italian war preparations were not nearly that of Germany's, who had pivoted their entire economy towards war years ago. In July, the Italian dictator met with Hitler to tell him exactly this, to make it clear that while they can continue to be aggressive, they must negotiate peacefully for the next few years in order to give Italy time to be prepared for a general war. Mussolini was not living in quite the same fantasy world as Hitler, and saw that the only outcome of war with Poland would be a total European war, not the isolated war that Hitler and Ribbentrop were predicting. 
Mussolini wanted to get to the bottom of Hitler's plans, and so he sent his foreign minister, a man named Gileazzo Ciano, to find answers. Ciano was actually Mussolini's son-in-law, and as a member of his family, the dictator adopted Ciano as not just his foreign minister, but a close confidant, someone that the paranoid autocrat could trust to speak to him honestly. Ciano got on a train and head to Germany. His first meeting would be with his German counterpart, Ribbentrop, on August 11th in Salzburg. Days before the meeting, Ciano wrote into his diary, We must find a way out. By following the Germans, we will go to war and enter it under the least favorable conditions for the Axis, and especially for Italy. Our gold reserves are reduced to almost nothing, as well as our stocks of metals. We must avoid a war. It would be impossible to localize it, and a general war would be disastrous for everybody. Chano arrived at Salzburg to try to talk the Germans out of their war fever. There were clouds over the mountain town on the first day of his conference with Ribbentrop. Chano arrived at the German foreign minister's office, and the two men sat down across from each other like two thieves, each one deeply suspicious of the other. The arrogant Ribbentrop abruptly began the meeting. An attack on Poland is both inevitable and unstoppable. There is no point in discussing this. Ciano, well aware of Ribbentrop's bluster, decided to cut to what he believed was the point. Well, Ribbentrop, what do you want? The Polish corridor, as you have said publicly, or all of Danzig? Ribbentrop shot back. Neither. We want war. Ciano was shocked by the blunt admission by the German foreign minister. But like any good diplomat, he tried to appeal to pragmatism and began to give reasons why the war would be a devastating outcome for both countries. You must know that it cannot be localized. The Western democracies will fight. But Ribbentrop, like Hitler, was convinced they would not. Why don't we make it interesting, Ciano? I'll bet you a collection of German armor against an Italian painting that the war will be contained. Ciano was getting nowhere with Ribbentrop. There was no point. The German foreign minister, like the rest of Hitler's cabinet, were now merely extensions of Hitler, carrying out his will. The next day, Ciano met with Hitler himself, traveling deeper into the mountains to Hitler's estate, the Berghof, where he found the Fuhrer in his study, standing over a large table covered in military maps. Hitler was not nearly as rude to Ciano as his deputy Ribbentrop was, and seemed to want to calm the nerves of the frantic Italian foreign minister, and in turn, reassure Mussolini that his plan was sound. Look, Ciano, at what I have built. Look at the immense fortifications. 
It is a western wall. Imagine a line in and of itself. But this one keeping the French out. You fear an attack by the French? Assaulting the western wall would be a fool's errand. I would beat it back easily. It is so formidable a deterrent that it will keep the West out of the war. Ah, but you say, what of England? Not a concern. They can only put three divisions on the continent to fight Germany. Of course, the French will have more, but Poland will be defeated quickly, within two weeks. And as soon as that happens, 100 German divisions will reel around and face the West. Chano did not seem reassured by Hitler's details of the plan. If anything, he was even more concerned about how far along the planning for this general war now seemed. He took a breath and said to the German leader, These plans seem quite thought through, which surprises me since Italy had not been informed of any of these operations. Italy's contention remains that such a plan would quickly spread to a general European war. Hitler disagreed. I am absolutely convinced that the Western democracies will, in their last resort, recoil from unleashing a general war. They have done so at every opportunity. Chano was unconvinced. I hope that the Fuhrer will prove right, but I do not believe it. Chano then pulled his final diplomatic card, making it clear to Hitler just how unprepared Italy would be for the general war he was planning. As Hitler listened, Ribbentrop, also sitting in the room listening to the conversation between his Fuhrer and Chano, seemed to get impatient with the excuses. He jumped out of his chair and cut off the Italian minister, saying, Well then, we don't need you! Time will tell, Ribbentrop, the Italian minister shot back, but he realized he was getting nowhere again. The warnings were falling on deaf ears. His best hope now was to get all of the details he could, so Italy could prepare as much as possible. So he asked Hitler directly, And when is the date of the attack? The strike against Poland must take place before the autumn rains. If we wait too long, our armor divisions will be less effective. So I will say the end of August, at the latest. But if there is an incident carried out by the Polish before then, we could attack any day, within 48 hours. The end of August, less than six weeks away, or worse, an incident that could occur at any day between now and September. Chano sank back into his chair. There was no use. All that was left was to report back to Rome and tell Mussolini that Italy must prepare as best they could. As Chano was leaving the meeting, he asked Hitler if the meeting could be kept confidential, not making the press aware of it. Hitler agreed. And yet, two hours later, Goebbels issued a press release saying that Hitler and the representative from the Italian government met today. The talks had covered all of the issues of the day, including the situation of Danzig. 
this meeting resulted in 100% agreement, without a single issue unresolved. So much so, that both countries agreed that no further meetings of the foreign offices were necessary. Chano was told of the press release as he was boarding his train home, and he was furious. He quickly wrote to Mussolini that this was not how the meeting went, and that the Germans were now operating in bad faith, that the purpose of the press release was to link Italy and Germany in whatever was about to happen next. Chano's trip home was long and tired. He retched into his diary, saying, I returned to Rome completely disgusted by the Germans, their leader with their way of doing things. They have betrayed us and lied to us. Now they are dragging us into an adventure in which we did not want, which might compromise the regime and our country as a whole. Italy's fate was now tied to Germany's, and Hitler had finally set a date for when he believed hostilities against Poland would begin. September 1st, six weeks away. There was now only one power left in Europe that needed to be dealt with. One power that threatened the action that Hitler wanted to take against Poland. One power that could not be ignored and could stop Hitler's plans in his tracks. One power who also had interest in the fate of Poland. The power was the Soviet Union and its army of millions, and the man who ruled over it with an iron fist, Joseph Stalin. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Michael. Thank you for listening to How to Start a War. If the story so far has been meaningful to you, please share it with someone else. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. And thanks again. Now, back to the story. The Nazi foreign minister, Ribbentrop, sat in his office and thought hard about what he had just been told to do. His leader was demanding, with growing intensity, a war with Poland. He had even set a date for it to begin. But now there was something in his way, or someone. Someone that Ribbentrop was now tasked to deal with. The Man of Steel, Joseph Vyarionovich Stalin. Stalin, like Hitler, believed Poland should not exist, that it was a fabrication of the Allies after the Great War, 
Poland, according to Stalin, occupied territory that was rightly Russian. Just as Hitler believed that Poland occupied territory that was rightly German. So, Ribbentrop thought, there is some common ground there. Maybe I can use that. There were other concerns as well. Germany was not the only country courting Russia for an alliance. Britain and France were making moves too. The Allied democracies were scrambling to create a policy of encirclement, hoping to surround Germany on all sides with hostile powers, containing them to the continent of Europe if a war ever broke out. It would be a steel trap and a repeat of the strategy of the Great War. To Hitler, this could not be allowed to happen. Ribbentrop knew that he would have to make a deal with the Soviets before they were wooed away by the Allies. Which means he had to find something to offer to them that the Allies couldn't give. Something valuable enough to make a communist become friends with a fascist. After several discussions with Hitler, Ribbentrop had an idea. What you're about to hear are the tense, vigorous exchange of telegrams that flew across the continent between the foreign offices of Germany and the Soviet Union in the weeks before the war. The telegrams have been translated into English and read word for word. Ribbentrop's first telegram would be sent to his own ambassador in Moscow, telling him to arrange a meeting with Ribbentrop's counterpart, the Soviet Minister of Foreign Affairs, Vyacheslav Molotov. Molotov was a protege of Stalin. They came up together during the revolution that brought the Bolsheviks to power. And when there was a power struggle to take control of the country, it was Molotov who propped up Stalin, allowing him to consolidate power and take control of the government. Molotov was a master of negotiation, a veteran diplomat, and a trusted confidant of his leader. He was a formidable adversary, and he was the man that Ribbentrop needed to convince. Ribbentrop's telegram to his ambassador in Moscow was marked secret most urgent. For the first time, Ribbentrop addressed the Soviet foreign minister openly about a German desire to create a new relationship with Russia. He wrote, There exist no real conflicts of interest between Germany and Russia. The time to act between our countries is now, before this moment slips by. To this end, I am acting on the authority of Hitler to request a meeting with you and General Secretary Stalin in Moscow to create this relationship once and for all. And then he hinted at what Germany was prepared to offer. There is no question between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea that cannot be settled to the complete satisfaction of both countries. That was wrapped up in diplomats' speak, so let me say that again. There is no question, Ribbentrop said, between the Baltic Sea 
the body of water above Eastern Europe, and the Black Sea, the body of water below Eastern Europe, that could not be settled to the complete satisfaction of both countries. To put that even clearer, together, Ribbentrop said, we can carve up Eastern Europe for ourselves. It was the one thing that Germany could offer Russia that the Western democracies could not. Ribbentrop set the telegram on the night of August 14th, then went to bed. He didn't sleep. The following night, he got an answer. Molotov had been read the telegram verbatim by Ribbentrop's ambassador, just as instructed. In conveying how the meeting went, the ambassador said that the Russian foreign minister had received the telegram with the greatest interest. But, being the seasoned diplomat he was, Molotov was playing it slow, saying that it was not yet the time for an in-person meeting between the two countries. Many preparations would need to be made in order for the talks to lead to desired results. However, Molotov did ask a set of questions that showed them that they were on the same page. He asked, Would Germany be prepared to use its influence with Japan to improve Russian-Japanese relations? How did Germany feel about the joint guarantee of the Baltic states? And the kicker, would the German government be interested in a non-aggression pact between the two countries? A concrete proposal. Yes, Molotov would drag his feet, but for the first time, the Russians were openly discussing the possibility of staying out of a war, effectively allowing Germany to deal with Poland however it wanted. While this was all good news, it was now the middle of August, two weeks from when Hitler wanted to launch his war with Poland. He didn't have time for the schedule Molotov was proposing. He needed to try to speed things up. Ribbentrop met with Hitler so that they could discuss a reply. It's now August 16th. Ribbentrop wrote a reply that was designed to accelerate the process. Germany will accept all points from the Russian minister unconditionally. Yes, Germany was prepared to enter a non-aggression pact for up to 25 years. Yes, Germany would exercise their influence with Japan to ease tensions between the countries. Yes, Germany would enter a joint guarantee for the Baltic states. Then, Ribbentrop set a clear tone that, in exchange for these concessions, there must be greater urgency. The Fuhrer is of the opinion that, in the view of the present situation and the possibility of the occurrence any day of serious events, a basic and rapid clarification of German-Russian relations and each country's attitude to the questions of the moment is desirable. For these reasons, I am prepared to come by airplane to Moscow at any time after Friday, August 18th, to deal with, on the basis of full powers from the Fuhrer, with the entire complex of German-Russian relations, and, if the occasion arises, 
to sign the appropriate agreements. Ribbentrop sent the telegram and anxiously awaited a reply from Hitler's mountain retreat. When the telegram arrived in Moscow, the German ambassador quickly set up a meeting with Molotov. The German ambassador then read the telegram to Molotov as he was instructed, and the discussions began. It was now obvious to the Soviet foreign minister that the Germans were in a rush. The Germans wanted something. This was leverage Molotov could use. Molotov reminded the German ambassador that the Germans had been openly hostile to the Soviets up to this point, citing Hitler's rhetoric against communists and international treaties that Germany had signed to isolate Russia. However, if Germany is now prepared to change this attitude towards Russia, we would only welcome it. But before any non-aggression pact could be in place between the two countries, they must establish a trade agreement first. There must be serious and practical steps, not this one big leap. Only after the trade agreement, we could potentially enter a non-aggression pact if Germany would also make agreements of spheres of influence in the Baltic states. As for the in-person meeting between the foreign ministers that Ribbentrop asked to take place this week, Molotov did not seem to care about this urgency, or more likely, purposely ignored it. He thanked Ribbentrop for making the offer to visit Moscow in person. The foreign minister's offer to fly to Moscow personally showed me that the Germans were taking these negotiations seriously, which is welcomed. However, many preparations would need to be made for such a trip. The Soviet government would not like to make such a meeting public, and I prefer to have much of these negotiations in private as possible. So what did this next volley of telegrams add up to? The Soviets were saying, yes, we're very open to discuss these things, but not on your fast schedule. Molotov was playing the game well. When they want fast, you go slow. Ribbentrop read the telegram, and his anxiety levels raised higher. Yes, they were making progress, but without speed, the progress was useless. Ribbentrop had to remove the obstacles that Molotov laid out, the reasons he was giving as to why things must be slow. Ribbentrop then ordered a trade agreement to be drawn up and made the terms purposely favorable to Russia, an offer they could not refuse. He sent the agreement to the Russian embassy in Berlin. The Russians that were there were thrilled with these terms that seemed to come out of nowhere and were quick to agree to sign them. They accepted the offer to sign the trade deal the next day. Then, Ribbentrop replied to Molotov. We too, under normal circumstances, would naturally be ready to pursue an alignment of German-Russian relations through diplomatic channels and to carry it out in the customary way. But the present unusual situation makes it necessary, in the opinion of the Fuhrer, to employ a different method which would lead to faster results. 
The German-Polish relations were becoming more acute from day to day. We have to take into account that incidents might occur any day that would make the outbreak of a conflict unavoidable. He therefore considers a previous clarification necessary, if only to be able to take into account Russian interests in the case of such conflict, which would of course be difficult without such clarification. I am prepared, once again, to leave for Moscow this day, August 18th, with full powers from the Fuhrer, and to settle all of the complex problems that are on the table. After signing the telegram, Ribbentrop wrote a special note to his ambassador, to not take no for an answer. It's now August 19th, 13 days from Hitler's planned launch of the war. His plans called for issuing commands to German battleships to move to their stations in the Atlantic, which needed days of advance notice to arrive on time. Hitler could not give these orders until they had heard back from Russia. Hitler's entire war was now being held up by Russian delays and the German dictator was beginning to grow desperate. It was as if the sly Russian foreign minister could smell the desperation from the Germans. At noon the next day, when the quickly written trade agreement between Germany and Russia was scheduled to be signed in Berlin, the Russians balked, delaying the signing of the meeting, citing the need for direction from the Kremlin. It was clear that Molotov had told his emissaries in Berlin to stop the signing. Ribbentrop's attempt to rush the Soviets through their terms was stopped in its tracks. Molotov, the master negotiator, was cold and unfazed by the German requests. In his reply to Ribbentrop's latest telegram, he said, It is impossible to set a date for the talks at this time, because the first step trade deal has not even been signed yet. First, we must go public with the trade deal so it can achieve its desired effect internationally. Only then can we engage in discussions of non-aggression. The German ambassador, who is acting as Ribbentrop's mouthpiece in Berlin and received Molotov's reply, protested. But Molotov said that he had given Germany the official position of the Soviet government, and he had nothing more to add to it. The German ambassador left in defeat, and began to think about how to convey this message back to Ribbentrop. But just as he returned to the German embassy, only a half an hour later, something strange happened. He received a handwritten note from Molotov, asking him to return to his office immediately. Very curious. The German ambassador turned around and rushed back to the Kremlin. When he got there, he saw Molotov, who seemed like a different person. Molotov apologized for the trouble he had put the German ambassador through. Then, offering no explanation, he handed the ambassador a draft of a non-aggression pact between Germany and Russia, and that they would allow the meeting that Ribbentrop had asked for to take place on the 26th, one week from now, 
if the trade agreement was to be signed tomorrow. The German ambassador couldn't believe his luck. He didn't ask why there was a sudden change of heart for Molotov. He suspected he already knew the answer. He rushed back to the German embassy and wired Ribbentrop the good news. It arrived to Ribbentrop on the night of August 19th at 7.10 p.m. Secret, most urgent. The Soviet government agreed to the Reichfort minister coming to Moscow one week after the announcement of the signature of the economic agreement. Molotov stated that if the conclusion of the economic agreement was made public by tomorrow, the Reich foreign minister could arrive in Moscow on August 26th or 27th. Molotov also handed me a draft of a non-aggression pact. Molotov did not give the reasons for his sudden change in mind, but I assume that Stalin intervened. My attempt to move the date of the meeting in Moscow earlier was unfortunately unsuccessful. A breakthrough. An agreement of terms, a draft of a non-aggression pact, and a personal intervention by Joseph Stalin to see that it took place. Ribbentrop's heart began to race. It was everything that the Germans wanted, but it still was not fast enough. Waiting a whole week for this meeting to take place, along with any other delays the Russians might make, would cause Hitler to miss his deadline of launching the war on September 1st. Ribbentrop rushed to Hitler's office to alert him of the news. When Hitler was told of the latest breakthroughs from Moscow, he decided that it was time for him to personally intervene. On August 20th, at 6.40 p.m., 12 hours after he had received the communication from his ambassador, the following telegram was sent from Hitler's own desk. To Mr. Stalin, Moscow. I sincerely welcome the signing of a new German-Soviet commercial agreement as the first step in the reshaping of German and Soviet relations. I also accept the draft of the non-aggression pact of your foreign minister, Mr. Molotov, handed over, but consider it urgently necessary to clarify the questions connected with it as soon as possible. These questions can, I am convinced, be clarified in the shortest possible time if a responsible German statesman can come to Moscow himself to negotiate. The tensions between Germany and Poland have become intolerable. A crisis may arise at any day. Germany is determined from now on to look after its interests of the Reich with all the means at her disposal. I therefore again propose that you receive my Foreign Minister Ribbentrop on Tuesday, August 22nd, but at the latest Wednesday, August 23rd. The Reich Foreign Minister will have the fullest powers to draw up and sign the Non-Aggression Pact. A longer stay by the Foreign Minister in Moscow than one or two days at most is impossible in view of the international situation. I should be glad to receive your early answer. Signed, Adolf Hitler. Over the next 24 hours, Hitler went into a state of complete anxiety and panic. Those around him were worried that he was on the brink of a mental collapse. He did not sleep. Overnight, he had phoned several of his close confidants, including his number two, Hermann Göring, to express his fear in how Stalin might receive his desperate request. 
he had effectively begged before the Soviet dictator, a man he didn't know, a man who was his largest threat. Had he just given away their desperation, all of their leverage now and into the future? At last, on August 21st at 9.35 p.m., a reply came over the wires to Berlin. To the Chancellor of the German Reich, A. Hitler, I thank you for the letter. I hope that the German-Soviet non-aggression pact will bring about a decided turn for the better in the political relations between our countries. I believe that the peoples of our countries need peaceful relations with each other. The assent of the German government to the conclusion of a non-aggression pact provides the foundation for eliminating the political tensions and for establishment of peace and collaboration between our nations. The Soviet government have instructed me to inform you that they agree the Herr von Ribbentrop arriving in Moscow on August 23rd. Joseph Stalin. Within hours, Ribbentrop was on a plane to Moscow. Comrade Stalin will see you now. Ribbentrop stood up stiffly from his chair, took a deep breath, and walked through the door held open by Molotov. Earlier in the day, Ribbentrop had met with Molotov to iron out the details of spheres of influence, which basically meant which small countries would they be allowed to swallow up without the other one caring dividing up Eastern Europe. For Germany, one of those countries was Poland. In the negotiations, Germans would allow for a piece of Poland to be carved out for the Soviets. In addition, Germany would recognize Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia as countries of Soviet influence, meaning Russia could gobble these countries up. No conflicts with Germany there. With these details settled, all that was left was for Molotov to sign the agreement. Ribbentrop had not expected to meet with Stalin himself, and so he was surprised and nervous when Stalin insisted in participating in the second meeting when the signing was scheduled to take place. He had been told that the meeting would go late into the night, with no indication as to why. Ribbentrop felt like he was prepared for anything. Last-minute delay tactics to get a better deal pushing for definitive guarantees to support Russia against Germany's other allies like Japan, even imposing Stalin's will of personality to get something else he wanted. When Ribbentrop entered the room, he saw him, standing behind his desk. He was wearing a gray coat with large buttons, buttoned up to his neck, his jet-black hair showing small traces of gray above his forehead, his thick mustache sitting atop a broad smile. The revolutionary, the street thug, the tyrant, the murderer. Perhaps the only match to Hitler's vile cult of personality in the world. But now, Ribbentrop did not see Stalin the autocrat. 
Nowhere to be found was the man of steel, notorious for murdering his friends, intimidating his enemies, and fiercely negotiating to the last moment. Instead, he saw a smile. Ribbentrop was led to a table where the agreements were laid out. Short summaries were shared by both parties of the treaty, and Molotov proceeded to sign. Ribbentrop, still in shock at how easily the Russians had concluded the agreement, quickly signed the treaty as well, as if, if he didn't do it immediately, he might wake up from a dream. Ribbentrop put the pen down and looked up. Instantly, the atmosphere of the room changed to celebration. Stalin kept grinning from ear to ear. They took pictures, and glasses were brought out to toast the event. Stalin, without any provocation, said loudly, I know how much the German nation loves its Fuhrer. I should therefore like to drink to his health. The men raised their glasses and drank. Molotov followed. To the health of our new friend, Minister Ribbentrop. The men drank again. Molotov again toasted. To the agreement of friendship between the two countries. Ribbentrop, then deciding to join in, proposed a toast to Stalin and to the favorable development of relations between Germany and the Soviet Union. The three men were jovial, laughing, and drinking into the night, discussing the matters of the world. Germany now had permission to invade Poland in a matter of days. Factor seven in how to start a war is permission. Contrary to what it might seem, wars are rarely fought bilaterally. Since war is often the last resort, many of the interested parties negotiate before hostilities begin. It is entirely common for leaders of nations to create permission structures between allies to allow for flexibility to wage a war of mutual interest. Hitler wanted a war with Poland, but Poland did not exist in a vacuum. Poland had allies, Britain and France. Poland also had a border with Russia, Russia who had interests in Poland too. It was a proximity that Hitler could not ignore. Russia had an army of millions, and while much of their fighting force was poorly trained and ill-equipped at this time, Germany would be unable to fight a war against Poland, Britain, France, and Russia. Hitler's own mental breakdown leading up to Stalin's response proved just how important to Hitler Stalin's permission was to his war with Poland. The entire operation hung on Russia, keeping out of it. And what did Stalin get from Hitler in return for staying out of the war? A lot. 
something that the Western democracies could never give him. A carve-out of the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, a whole section of Poland that would be absorbed into the Soviet Union. Not only was this more territory for economic growth, but was also a new buffer that Stalin could use against Germany in the event that their relationships ever broke down. And so went the fate of Poland on a summer night in Moscow, over glasses of vodka, laughter, and smiles. When Hitler received word of the agreement, he took the step that would change the course of history. He ordered a general mobilization of the German armed forces and called General Keitel to inform him that the invasion would now take place six days ahead of schedule on August 26th. Hitler also gave another, more mysterious order. It was for 150 Polish military uniforms to be sent to the border. What would the German military want with Polish uniforms? What would unfold in the wild whiplash of events that would still occur in the last days of peace? Next time, in the gripping, spellbinding conclusion of how to start a war. How to Start a War is written and produced by me. You can follow along each episode by following How to Start a War Pod on Instagram. I'm Michael Trapani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>